That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Pobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient-focused vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high-quality, naturopathic doctor-designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Okay, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. It's Dr. Dave here, Dr. David Miller, ND. I got to say ND at the end. We do. We got to be, we got to say the right things, Michelle. Yes. And this is Dr. Yeah. Michelle Pobega, also naturopathic doctor as co-host on that naturopathic podcast. Again. Thank you. Yeah. It's been, it's been a ride. I like it. It's a good journey. Yeah. Rough day today. Rough day for Dr. Michelle today. Got some RuPaul uh, drag <laughs> race in. Are you, you going to bring that in? Yeah. yeah. I had an emotional morning and it's my day off technically other than really strategically maybe taking some meetings or recording the podcast. And this morning I did not feel in the headspace to do anything practical or work. So I watched the newest season of RuPaul's Drag Race on Netflix and it brought me a lot of joy. Not a girl. It, always, it always does. Give me some, some, give me some like sass and something sparkly. Uh, and I'm a happy, I'm a happy girl. Like it was good. Does it influence your fashion sense? Cause it, it, people who are listening can't see what you're wearing, but you're wearing a pretty rock and uh, adidas top from the boys youth section it's true i don't know if rupaul's drag race influenced this per se i would have to give credit to my boyfriend he is a diehard star wars fan and we were in sport check a couple years back this is a few years old now and i saw this hanging in the boys youth section and i was like well what does it say about my figure that i am a 14 year old boy's size but Ba-doom. Key, key tip, key tip. It was cheaper than the adult versions and less tax. So I kind of knocked it out of the park with this. And it's a dope jacket. Like the coloring on it is cool. Like I have Darth Vader. I have Chewy that oh, yeah. hangs out it around. Looks, it looks good. pretty Star Wars-y yeah. or uh, something like that. But anyway, that, that's pretty useless for you people listening. For the people listening only, um, we I'll tell you what we're going to talk about today. We want to talk about um, what diet and when. And it's like... It's hard, right? Like even when I when I proposed this topic to you, Michelle, it was kind of like, ah, oh, diet. Because it's <laughs> well, seriously, it's like it's a sure. necessary evil or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's it's clear as mud a lot of the time. Yeah. And there's a lot of like a lot of uh belief systems that that you know, if this diet worked for me, my god, it's the best diet in the world. Like you, I'm sure everyone's met a keto person or whatever, <laughs> yes. or a vegan. Yeah. Um, which is great. Do your thing, baby. What on that's like great, good for you. But uh <clears throat> the problem is uh one size fits all, and then it's hard implementing this stuff. You know, as uh as a naturopathic doctor, like maybe sustainability. I, I talk about sometimes like the best diets from our perspective as a naturopath clinician yeah. is like the hardest ones to implement yeah. for the person. So yeah. anyway, let, let's, I just want to hear what you have to say after that sort of preamble. What do you, what do you say about diets and what to use when? I have like a bit of a love hate relationship with that because, yeah. uh, because it should be individualized. 
And I also realized that a lot of people don't have healthy relationships around food. So number one, Ooh, I we hate didn't talk word. about that. We didn't talk I, about that. That's a good one though. I just hate the word diet to yeah. begin with. Yeah. So in my treatment plan, I literally have a subheading that's food and nutrition because I don't want to use the word diet cool. specifically, right? So I, I subhead it that way when I make my recommendations cool. for people. And I just find there's so much unlearning and relearning when it comes to what people should be eating. Um, but it's, but it's a tough one because there's so much emotional eating. There's so much stress related eating and yep. a lot of people go into autopilot. So it's, it's interesting waters to navigate and people come in with the newest fad diets and it's difficult to have the conversation sometimes with people. If you can see that it's not benefiting with, for them, or they're really stuck on something. I have like this one client comes to mind. She's struggled with autoimmune conditions for a while mm -hmm. and it's her physicians can't quite land on exactly which one she's struggling with because mm -hmm. it looks like a, a possibly a few and like some blood markers, as you know, aren't always specific for that. And she eats a very restricted diet because she has gas and bloating. We've worked on things before but she refuses. She does not want to eat any animal protein. And I've been very respectful of that. But I also have some trepidations because I think that the lectins, the phytates and the legumes, the grains and the et cetera, that she's dependent on are not serving her in the positive way. And it's become, um, I've made suggestions that I still think it's in her best interest, but I'm not going to force her, but it might be an uphill battle to get her where we need to be. And then there's some people who I know who have struggled with autoimmune conditions and what really helped them was simplifying and even sometimes going on a temporary carnivore diet or making sure to eat tip to tail and organ meats and eating vegetables primarily and getting rid of the grains just to make sure you're getting your essential amino acids and things. And so, I mean, I feel like the hard part is, is that like you alluded to, there's so many different opinions about what's mm -hmm. the best thing. Um, and some people come into our office with preconceived ideas of what they want to do. And they may or may not always be open to the recommendations that we make, which we, which we think or know, or at least want to try to see if it's in their best interest. And it's always a really interesting conversation with food. Yeah, for sure. Um, there was a, there was a period of time that I was prescribing, uh, basically elimination diet for everyone. Um, and it, it's, it's an amazing tool to have yeah. as a clinician, but you almost wish you could go to the person's house and cook for them. Just it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's sustainability and the effort and commitment is huge. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, the, the results, uh, I've seen just crazy, crazy results with that. And, and, almost, I don't think I've had one person that didn't do, who did it, that didn't get some real benefit or insight into what they're doing. Agreed. Um, it's a hard sell though, to be like, Hey, well, without I don't eat actual, like that all the time without testing, I want you to remove X, Y, and Z that create the most inflammation. And for a lot of people, they're kind of like, Oh yeah, I don't know. And even when I run food sensitivity tests, and it's blatantly screaming in their face. The results are saying you have to lay off of dairy and eggs and this and this. And I have the, I have the conversation that it's not a lifelong sentence. It's a, it's a, for where you are right now. And as we do the rest of the other healing work, we can get you at a place where 90% of this will probably be back yeah. into your diet and it'll be fine. Yeah. But even then, a lot of people want to fight me. So as much as I love the elimination diet, I find that sometimes it's a really hard sell to get people on board with. Yeah, I don't, um, I, don't I don't blame them one bit. Totally. I think I've had some really sick people do it. And um, when I say really sick, I hope you know what I mean. Like just like, you know, cases that the person was ready to do whatever it yes. took. If they're yeah. ready to do whatever it takes, elimination diet is is hard to beat as part of part of your arsenal of tools. It's such a it's such a phenomenal reset for people. I feel yeah. like that's the best way to look at it. It really does help create a massive reset for people's systems. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, so but, yeah. it, but, it, but usually it is, you're right. Usually it's for people who feel like they're at their last resort coming to see us and they'll try anything. And then you're kind of yeah. like, well, guess what I've got for you? <laughs> and they're like, whatever, I'll do it. Yeah, no, like I, I, this is back when 
um, before I referred out like every cancer case, like I refer every cancer case I get to like Jill Shane House or Chamandeep Singh, yeah. Chamandeep Bali Singh or whoever, someone who's used to dealing with that stuff because yeah, yeah, I don't feel good enough in that field to do it. But when I when I was uh, not referring out, I, I remember putting a, a woman who, I think she had a diagnosis of cancer and then she was like, I want to do everything I can to be as healthy as I can. We put her on that elimination diet. She did it to a T because she's because her why is pretty deep, mm-hmm. you know. So, and she, wrote, I remember the email she wrote me. Said, "I'm like a fire breathing dragon. I'm like I'm back, and I'm like, and I'm so so healthy. Oh, I love and I it. feel, and it was like, wow, like this woman, like spitting straight fire through. Um, but it, but you said something interesting too. Is as naturopaths, you and I understand the benefits of this, but we don't live that all day, every day. I have lived that when yeah. I was going through my own health crisis and I had to rebuild myself. Yeah. But the ultimate goal I find, as for myself at least, and you can, you, I want to see where you land on this. Is and I imagine it's the same. Is to always get people on the most diverse diet they could possibly have with that, that agrees that elevates their health rather than works against it. And sometimes that means you have to make certain sacrifices at the beginning and compromises at the beginning to reestablish a healthier balance in the body. So the body's more capable of having a larger variety of foods. And that goes for a lot of GI issues that you and I deal with. Sometimes you have to make some sacrifices at the onset, but I never want someone to just indefinitely be like, okay, you're gluten-free, dairy-free, egg-free, blah, 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 blah. Like that's annoying. (laughs) Yeah, well, what you're getting at is, I mean, at least a part of what you're getting at is sustainability. Exactly. And that's a big thing for me. Like, if I can't, unless there's like, it's sort of like, there's a, there's a time, time limit. Like, that's what's cool about if you do elimination diet, like I've found personally, again, this, this could be different for other people. I find two to three weeks of doing it perfectly gives you enough uh, of a, of a starting point to then reintroduce because the reintroduction is the real you know, that's the real deal. That's yeah. when you find out whether it's necessary to avoid that, um, yeah. that food or not. Yeah. So, um, if there's endpoints, then it's, that's okay. Yeah. You can do that. You can sort of do anything with it. Humans can almost do anything if they know when the end is in sight. Yeah. Um, but so- I, what, what I've loved about those processes is sometimes I get people to come back and they're like, um, I feel so much better not eating gluten that I'm okay not having it back in my diet. And I'm like, cool, yeah. now you made that choice for yourself. And that's always it's very the different, ultimate, isn't it? That's always the ultimate goal is like, okay, you're now going to choose to not re- bring that back in because the moment you had it, you felt horrible. And you're like, that's not worth it to me. Um, yeah. And and for me also, you know, the, because of my, me and your, yours, yours and mine, oh, grammar, uh, our <laughs> invested interest, hello, in the microbiome, thank you, um, our collective, our collective interest in the microbiome and feeding it means that we want to have a good diverse amount of fibers. So I always want people to be on the most diverse diet possible with a really high variety of those types yeah. of things. I, and I think one of the worst things we can get into is just same thing all day, every day. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, let that boring redundancy. Um, and, and sometimes when we go on these elimination diets and things, it's hard for people to get creative. So that's never something that I want people to be on long-term. And if it takes out certain kinds of things that do add nutritional value and gains long-term, then I would like to somehow find a way to bring that back in. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So spend a lot of time on elimination <laughs> diet, probably yeah. rightfully so. Cause I think it is a pretty badass uh, diet to do if you can do it. And if you've yep. got serious or autoimmune or, or, um, you know, your, your why is deep and you want some massive change pretty quick. I do yeah. like it. And, uh, but we should move on. L- let me just touch on the other ones that we're yeah. good. I'll, I'll, I'll just, just for listeners, we'll, we'll talk really briefly about, we'll touch on each one of these really briefly. So yeah. vegan, vegetarian, low FODMAP, candida diet, anti-inflammatory diet, spoiler alert. I don't really know what those are, um, time restricted eating paleo and autoimmune paleo keto SCD or gaps diet calorie restriction, um, and just a whole foods diet or a stop eating absolute shit diet, um, <laughs> and an lectin free diet, which I added cause you talked about lectins. So th- yeah. those are just some, and that's not an exhaustive list, but that's, that c- covers a lot of stuff you hear coming in the office. I'm sure. Totally. 
Okay. Now, when it comes to like something like vegan or vegetarian, you brought up the fact that it's good for kidney issues, but do you know what's really interesting? I don't treat a lot of kidney disease because that's a really specific niche, yeah. but I do have one client who have poly- who has polycystic kidney disease yeah. and he's actually on more of like a paleo keto diet and he's been holding steady and he's in a group of people who are all PCOS, I'm sorry, um, polycystic kidney disease, um, suffers and PKD suffers. And a lot of them have been finding that somehow the keto diet's been helping them, which is the complete opposite of a vegan and vegetarian diet. So it's interesting how that's been coming up now. Long-term is that going to be sustainable? I don't know. Um, but that's interesting though, you know, because, because what could be going on there when you got, uh, like, I don't know enough about that, those different disorders that all fit that chronic kidney disease, whatever. Um, some of them may be autoimmune uh, propagated more yeah. so than protein is the problem. Right. That could be what's going on in cases like that, because as you know, and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit, like different different kinds of starches and things like that might con- contribute to different sort of uh, dysfunctions in the gut, which then cause some autoimmune weirdness. Right. Um, and you know, <laughs> autoimmune is weird. And weird. maybe the autoimmune weirdness is worse than the too much, uh, you know, protein for the kidney to have to, to work yeah. with. So, and I think it would still be within a range of, um, I think they're still modifying the amount of animal protein they have. It's just eating more of the greens that are allowed right. and say like a keto diet with the healthy fats and stuff to sustain them. And I right. just found it was really interesting when he came, he, I had a bit of a break from seeing this client and then he came back to me and he was like, so now I'm in this, this group and I'm trying keto. And I was like, wow, that? And there's also a naturopath that we know, um, Andra, uh, Campitelli is it Campitelli? She is keto and she also, uh, she had uh polycystic kidney disease. So she's, she's treated it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to talk to her sometime. I know. I'd love to pick her brain more, but I mean, because it's a bit counterintuitive because when you like, I have, I have a patient uh, who's got chronic kidney disease. I I think, um, she might be, uh, stage three and, low protein diet will be part of yeah. what you do normally for someone who's got um, stage three kidney disease. Uh, well, that's been like the gold standard for years is low protein diet for kidney And it makes sense to some yeah. degree again, but again, if you have this autoimmune stuff going on, maybe that's precludes it in terms of its importance. But the other things we wanted to say with uh, vegan vegetarian is you're just deficiencies are probably abound yeah. um, and including protein and B12. And I, have to, and I have to also ask, this, this question comes up into my mind. If someone chose to go vegan or vegetarian, I always ask why, is it ethical? Exactly. Is it religious? Yeah. Is it whatever? And some That's people are different. like, well, I just, I just found that I didn't tolerate meat well. And I'm immediately, I'm like, do you have a stomach acid issue? Yeah. Right. Or do you have a bile deficiency issue? Because that's yeah. going to make it more difficult to digest your proteins and your fats, which is also going to further perpetuate iron deficiency, B12 deficiency, B vitamin deficiencies, all that kind of stuff. So, right. Right. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. so, uh, yeah, so I, I say if someone's vegan or vegetarian and, and that's by, uh, ethical sort of spiritual thing, you go girl. Or yeah. Guy, I'm not going to mess with that. I'm going to say, no, okay, I just need do. to know. So I know that's what my cool. boundaries are. Right. Exactly. Yeah. One other thing I, I wondered about was carnitine and remember carnitine is probably, I'm sure carnitine is named carnitine because it's because of carna being meat. Um, so a meat derived protein, that's good for the heart and, and mitochondrial, uh, function. So I wonder, I sometimes wonder about carnitine in, in uh, vegetarian vegan too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you brought up something about lectins. So that's a thing with vegetarian and vegan stuff is that a lot of nuts, seeds, legumes, grains, certain vegetables and things like that. They're naturally sources of these things called anti-nutrients, phytates, and lectins, which have now been found to be highly inflammatory in a lot of bodies as well as yeah i think that's a key qualifier in some yeah. people yeah. and uh and they can also like literally interfere with digestion i think i think it was uh joe Clausen who works for rocky mountain analytical i was talking to him about this and the red component of he told me this the part that makes red kidney beans red is technically 
a protease inhibitor. So it stops protein enzymes from breaking down protein. And I was like, well, it just screws its own digestion, right? And I was like, that's wild. Um, mm -hmm. So I think we're only starting to begin to understand how these things affect the human body and historically or ancestrally, those types of nuts, seeds, and grains would be soaked or fermented or something yeah. before they were eaten. And it breaks down a lot of these nutrients. So if you are consuming a vegan or vegetarian diet, you need to understand maybe how to manage those particular um, components so that they create less irritation to your system after. Don't eat raw kidney beans, people. Yeah. Like pressure cook them or something just to begin yeah. to denature some of the proteins like th that those things are helpful for, for um, digestion. I, I, I don't use lectin free diet in clinical practice. I don't I either. If, if people do it and it, I, I mean, I'll, I'll do my same. I got my Bruce County saying it's good. If it's good, if that does you good, you go right on. But I, I don't find it, uh, clinically, I don't find it uh, helpful enough to, to, sort of hang a hat on. No, usually, um, I, usually I just give them like a holistic nutrition website to be like, here's how to soak your nuts and seeds. And, yeah. legumes. and I'll be like, start implementing this a little bit more at the very least, if you're going to continue to eat like larger volumes of those things. Exactly. Okay. Well, let's move on to low FODMAP. Yeah. What's your, what's your first sort of thoughts? We've talked about it before. Yeah. Not a fan. Yeah. I understand it's clinical ref relevance for specific conditions. Yeah. And for a finite period of time, like the elimination Ooh. diet, I, I Being don't precise think, with your language now. Absolutely. Michelle. I feel like uh, I've had people come into my office with the quote unquote IBS diagnosis and told to go on a low FODMAPS diet. And they come back into my office with very little guidelines um, and no real time point as to when to finish that. And the minute they stray from that diet, they feel like everything blows up symptom wise again, and they feel helpless and yeah. extremely like fatigued of the diet and restricted by it. Yeah. And it's because the underlying root issues were not addressed. Bam. I like it. Um, I kind of feel the same. Uh, it's, it's not a long-term approach. I find it diagnostically helpful to yes. so so if you go if you do fodmap properly um it it tells us okay there's some issue with uh the digestion of these um you know fructooligosaccharides disaccharides monosaccharides and polyols there's some issue with fodmaps in the gut and that tells us there's probably a microbial component which is helpful clinically absolutely uh, however you're starving your good bacteria too voila right so Anyway, we got to uh, know, I think yeah, you're, you were precise with your language. I think that's key with that one is the, the time period. Mm -hmm. um, and it can't be, and it can't be something that you do in isolation. You have to treat the root cause. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So candida and anti-inflammatory diet, I'm, I'm just going to wrap them together. I'm going to be honest about what I, I don't even know what they are. I, um, I would, I would group the anti-inflammatory diet with an elimination diet. Cause when you okay. do an elimination diet, I don't even, here's the thing, Michelle, you go and tell me what they are, because I don't even know, like, there's no, when we say elimination diet, yeah. like I'm following some metagenics document from years ago. Right. Okay. And then someone else's idea of the elimination diet won't have oranges on right. it. Yeah. We still call them both collectively the elimination diet. And this is where I was getting that issue becomes even more sort of like magnified with a candida diet. Cause some, some one wrote a candida diet book, who knows mm -hmm. what they know. <laughs> and then well, someone, I, and then there, they'll be, they'll be grumped, grouped, grouped together yeah. With, yeah. with another candida and they're not the same. Well, here's the thing is like, we're learning, we, when these things began, like the emulation diet, we learned about that while we were in school. This is like well over a decade ago. There's, there's been so much development in nutrition and dietary kind of shifts and changes in, in research over the last decade. Like, I don't know how many fad diets have come out in the last 10 years. It's actually been pretty wild. Mm -hmm. So there's new things. And even the idea of phytates and lectins have come out where, when we learned the elimination diet, legumes and nuts and seeds are all great outside of peanuts yeah. basically right where now yeah. i'm kind of like oh i don't know if i 100 agree if you're going to eat yeah. them you got to do this this and this so i feel like everything is evolving so i understand why there's confusion with this but i tend i tend to see the anti-inflammatory diet similar to the elimination diet in that the the most prominently inflammatory foods for majority of of the population are removed and then you can 
I would, even if it's an anti-inflammatory, I would still do the process of like reintroduction at some point to narrow down that food list. So it's not exhaustive for the person if they have to be on it for a slightly longer period of time. Um, but again, never done in isolation. I'm still trying to optimize digestive function and, and, and rebalance all the other moving parts of what makes that person them. Um, candida diet I find is, is helpful though, because if someone is struggling with candida, yeast is a natural part of who we are as humans, but it's opportunistic, just like a lot of the pathogens in SIBO or can be opportunistic too. If there's an environment that allows them to thrive, they're going to take that environment. So if there's a whole bunch of weaknesses and, and issues that have happened in the gut, the yeast can might just be like blowing up in numbers well above and beyond where it should. And then it causes problems. And that's also why it's difficult to manage um, because it's part of who we are. So the immune system isn't always on top of like regulating it as much. So you do, I think it is important to go on an anti candida diet to some degree for people so that we can manage it. I, I call it feeding the beast. You need to stop feeding the beast while you're bringing those numbers mm -hmm. down as well, because mm -hmm. it's kind of like all hands on deck for an anti candida diet. Cause sometimes it's a real bugger to get rid of. Um, and that's like, minimal carbs or choosing your carbs wisely and making sure they're always in a balanced meal. Your carbs are your least dominant thing on your plate. When it comes to complex carbohydrates, they're never refined carbs, refined sugars are out. Most sugars are out. And I even restrict, uh, or, or I don't hate the word restrict. I minimize fruit intake and I have come to learn certain fruits tend to acquire more molds and mycotoxins, which will then further irritate a candida person, like a lot of citrus fruits, melons, strawberries, things like that. And I typically take out the softer nuts, which are tend to have more molds and mycotoxins like peanuts, cashews, like pistachios, that kind of stuff that tends to be the basis of it. But otherwise it's a balanced diet with anything that would be like low, that would uh, low or avoidance of fungal related foods or high sugary foods, basically. Yeah. So I just looked up the candida diet, whatever, whoever wrote this, but I don't know uh, if I follow a specific one that somebody else created. That, that's kind of what I was getting at. like your idea. I, I would recommend anyone who's doing like a candida diet or an anti-inflammatory diet, see a naturopath, not, um, yeah, hold, hold, make sure that person's held to a really high standard with clinical nutrition and has a background in understanding these things. Here's Here's the nine is they've got like nine bullet points here for candida diet, avoid added sugars, every diet, mm -hmm. cut out junk food, mm -hmm. every diet, mm -hmm. eat non-starchy vegetables. You think of FODMAPs or, yeah. or SCD diet, eat low sugar fruits. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some diets enjoy healthy proteins, probably every diet other than, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't even say meat protein. So yeah, every diet use healthy fats and oils. Okay. Minimize your caffeine probably a good idea for a lot of people and eat non-glutinous grains, gluten-free diet. You see, there's just so much enjoy fermented foods. There's so many, so much overlap, I guess. And the thing is it says enjoy fermented foods, right? Find that's hit or miss depending on the person who's struggling and yeah. I'll take them off of yeasty foods. So I will be like, I'm sorry, you can't have wine, beer, and ciders, but if you want a shot of tequila from time to time, knock yourself out of the park. Right. Yeah. Like, right. But because so, so things like that, I have to be careful with some people might be more reactive to chocolates and coffee yeah. because of the mycotoxins on those. It, this is where it has to become a little bit more individualized. Um, yeah, but, we're always going to go back to that, right? Individualized. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like it's it's like it's it's the core of the foundations of our work, but yeah, and it's kind of the spoiler for this whole episode. Is <laughs> always spoiler. Alert. Always, always individualized, and yeah. uh, we got these different tools, but we're always going to individualize. Okay, um, time restricted eating. I'll talk about this one first. You can yeah. you can add in. Uh, whatever you want after, but I'll say, this is the one I'm using a lot, uh, in, in clinic because it's easy. It's an easy first step. And, totally. um, cause you're not really restricting people of the food or amount of food, although it's never like, it's never great to overeat crappy food. Like I, but I, I think it's kind of like telling someone like, uh, don't smoke. Okay. Like, uh, thanks. I'm going to pay you mm. whatever per hour yeah. to tell me not to smoke. Well, I, I feel <laughs> the same way about like, don't eat a whole bunch of really shitty food or like really sugary foods. Like, thank you very much. But at least with this, I just say, look, finish your dinner. So hopefully you have breakfast at whatever time in the morning and you can, you can add, you were going to say something about early uh, morning stomach. Uh, we can get into that appetite. Sure. But assuming big assumption, you eat like a normal time breakfast, maybe between seven and 10 AM. I don't know. Um, 
and then you just eat your normal lunch and then you eat your normal dinner. And then just if you have a, this is really only applicable to people who have like that nighttime snack or like a after dinner snack, like 8 PM or whatever, stop eating that and just eat it earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not about different food. It's not about less food. It's about when you eat those same foods. And if you do that, you are really going to have a massive impact on your circadian rhythms, which affect everything. There's two things that affect circadian rhythms. That's the sun and when you eat. And so you can't really do much about the sun, even though we try to do something with daylight savings time and don't get me started on that. I mean, the sun <laughs> comes up when it comes up. I don't, why do we have to, you know, be humans about that and try to change everything. But anyway, um, when you eat has another huge is the other input or changeable factor on uh, the circadian clock, all your body rhythms. So if you, if you, if you eat too late, you don't go into somnolence. You don't get into that pre-sleep zone means your sleep is not going to be as good. You're not going to regenerate as well overnight. Your gut now has been told, okay, you know, still working, keep working guys. And so it's not allowed to like clean up or do say immune cancer surveillance, just for an example, you know, mm -hmm. you can't digest foods and also do your, uh, you know, your autophagy or autophagy or whatever, and, and cancer clearance at the same time, they don't happen at the same time. So that's one of my favorite ones to do uh, first step uh, with, with people, the time restricted eating or time restricted feeding uh, a lot of good evidence on that. And I guess some people go extreme and do like intermittent fasting or, or whatever, but yeah, really don't eat your nighttime snack and you're going to, that's a good step in the right direction. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. I, I think that if people can eliminate that after dinner snack, there's, you know, recently I've had an uptick of people being like, I always crave something sweet after dinner. I have to have something sweet. And I'm getting a lot of that. I find that a big driving factor in that too is poor blood sugar regulation in the first place. People's meals are poorly balanced. And if you're going to break your fast, I don't care if it's lunch is your first meal or you actually have a breakfast, you're breaking your fast, which is breakfast, breakfast, it should have protein. None of this, I'm having a bowl of cereal. None of this, I had a big bagel. None of this croissant stuff. Like we have been so disillusioned to think that that's a, that's a sustainable breakfast. It's not, not in this day and age, maybe back in the day, like I know in Italy, they all have like a pastry and like a, a cappuccino and then they're off for their day. But then, then they have like a really substantial like lunch. But I think some traditional habits that we have don't translate to modern society because of the newer types of stresses and uh, challenges that we go through biologically, emotionally, mentally, physically, all the things. Mm -hmm. So we have to adapt and not having protein first thing in the day uh, at your first meal, at least is, is going to create a roller coaster for your blood sugar, which means your energy and your mood is going to follow. And if your energy and mood crash, you're going to make poor choices about your food after that. You're probably going to want to snack more. You're probably going to grab quick fixes. You're probably going to grab those sugars and you're just going to be on this roller coaster again. And I find that's a really big part that when people start to balance out their meals, they're able to snack less, they get less cravings. They don't have the nighttime cravings as much either. So it's interesting because it's really, again, it's meeting the person where they're at. For some people, they can be like, okay, I'm just going to start by not snacking after dinner. And they're, they're good to go for that. Other people, it's hella hard. And I have to start with balancing their meals first. Mm -hmm. um, I find there's also been a lot of people coming in who inadvertently are intermittent fasting because they don't have an appetite in the morning. And they're yeah. like, I don't feel hungry till at least 1130 or 12 o'clock. So I don't push them. I don't want to make people feel nauseated, but to me, that's always been a sign of their cortisol awakening response is probably like pooped out and they don't have that wake up, get up response and wake up all the organs that we should have in the morning, which includes our digestive function. So they don't have that appetite because they're probably just like pooped out. And that goes back to your circadian rhythm and 24 hour clock scenario. So I'm going to have to try that no snacking at night and I'm going to have to go back to see some of my clients that, that have complained about not having an appetite in the morning to see if they tend to be snackers in the evening. Cause if that's the case, I'm going to see if removing that nighttime snack makes a shift for them too. Yeah. Interesting my, to think, cause I've never thought about that before. So thanks for bringing that to my attention. 
In some cases it might. Um, and then I'll just say people in the morning, if, if you don't have an appetite in the morning, it's a, it's a stomach dysfunction of some form, maybe biochemical, maybe the effect of cortisol on the stomach, some other, uh, that's another aspect I haven't really looked at. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we always focus on what we focus on, but for me, it's broadly speaking, it's a sign of stomach dysfunction. And if I get patient's stomach feeling better, usually that appetite improves in the morning. So yeah, um, that's my strategy. Okay. Cool. Um, paleo and autoimmune paleo. I mean, AIP, AIP diet down with AIP. Yeah. You know me. Um, I don't really prescribe it per se, but I think that I would support it probably a lot. I would, I would support it. And I think that in my way of, of individualizing dietary plans for people, I have inadvertently supported it because for me, I think that paleo is probably the most balanced diet that majority of the population could would probably feel well on. It's low in excessive grain consumption or no grains, but maybe for some people, some grains are fine, but it's really the, like, you know, the ones that are least problematic. It's low in, in, in toxic foods and chemical heavy foods. It's low in sugars. And I feel like most people in this world can benefit from that because what's screwing up most of North American health right now is crappy diet that's high in sugars, excessively high in carbohydrates, excessively high in preservatives and, and chemicals and, and glyphosate and all that stuff. And if you remove those three things, most of you are going to feel pretty good. And I feel like it's, it's, it really goes down to basics of eating mostly a whole foods diet, a paleo diet. And I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Right. Yeah. And I feel like to kind of put it hard into to argue frame, with it. Right. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you in, in terms of the, um, the, plausibility of the paleo diet being like a pretty good a pretty good standard diet for the most part again there's yeah. always going to be conditions yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i know i know i know i know but as one that is like fairly easily mentally digested as to what is it okay what would like more uh older cultures have eaten like pre-agrarian yeah. okay i can sort of get into that and you can see um you can see the benefit um of that. And I, I, I'm probably more like you, I'm supporting it clinically when people do it. I'm like, go for it. Yeah. What was it? Was that the 30 day? What's that 30? A uh, whole 30, the whole 30 yeah. diet. I think it, I th- you know what? I know I think people, it was have, I know paleo, people have done right? it. Uh, I think it's paleo, but I think it's still like paleo slash elimination diet. So there's still a little bit of a restrictiveness, but maybe it also only feels restricted for people in North America. Cause we're so used to eating junk. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like it's about perspective. A lot of people would probably look at the way I eat, which I feel highly satisfied with why I eat. I don't feel like there's restrictions. I don't feel like there's limitations or um, I feel, I don't feel like there's a deficit in my nutritional value, but people based on standard North American eating, eating habits would probably be like, Oh my God, that's so restrictive. Meanwhile, I'm just like, I'm loving my life here, guys. Like I'm good. (laughs) So I think it's all about perspective too. Yeah. I think I'm just looking at the whole 30. Yeah. It looks like, like what you're saying is a kind of restricted paleo. Yeah. Um, So yeah, you're probably going to get results with it. Uh, But again, sustainability and that's why it's whole 30, not whole rest of your life. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's hard. Um. Yeah. Let's, how, how about we move on to um, keto? Yeah. So what, what would you say like the benefits of keto are, Dave? Well, well I mean, I'll go old school and say they, it's, it's an old anti-epilepsy originally. I think that's, yeah. that was, and that's really cool. And I think if, if you're, this would be whether you need like uh, either conventional or naturopathic medical management you know, if you're, if you're someone with epilepsy, it's something worth looking into. Yeah. Um, so that's the original sort of uh, the original sort of thinking with it. And so neurological conditions also uh, seem to be indicated to whatever you call a neurological condition. I mean, um, the whole body's involved in neurological conditions, but you can see some applications for it with, with those. I don't, I don't prescribe it per se. I, I would support anyone through it. Yeah. Um, the things I'm going to be uh, aware of as a gut guy are high fat uh, and, and the 
the possibility that high fat, because keto really just means low carb. It, it, it gets misconstrued as being a high fat diet. I'm like, well, not really. It just means low carb. Um, and often that just gets the rebound on that is okay. Well then I'll eat more fat. So you just, uh, gotta be careful with, with fats in the digestive tract. They can be inflammatory and problematic in terms of their breakdown toxicity. Um, and then maybe, especially if your liver gallbladder is compromised. Exactly. Well then there you go. Your individuality comes in right there. Yeah. Um, and then maybe too much protein sometimes for some people, uh, yeah. if, if they have an issue with protein, if they're, uh, you know, like those stage three kidney disease mm-hmm. or, or other sort of sensitivities to protein. I have some, I have some trepidations about the keto diet because it says low, because it's technically low carbs. It's not just no sugar, no grains. It's also no fruits, most fruits, except for maybe berries because they're low glycemic index. And even a significant amount of vegetables are basically kicked out because of their sugar content or carb content in the vegetables. So most colored vegetables or colorful vegetables are out. It's almost limited to a specific group of green veggies. And again, going back to fiber, which is the same reason why I don't love the low FODMAPs diet is because our microbiome loves a variety of different fibers to feed off of. If we want our microbiome to thrive, we need to give it the fertilizer and the fuel to thrive. And I'm curious to see the long-term ramifications of like a carnivore diet, a keto diet, things like that on microbiome. Now, initial things, people are like, no, it's fine. My microbiome's amazing and this and that. Um, But I don't know. I'm curious. I feel like a lot of a lot of our testing may not even be as adequate as it needs to be to assess the microbiome because gut health is only in the last five, 10 years really starting to have a light shone on it. So a conventional light for sure. Yeah. Like from a science and research perspective, like I'm only now seeing so much more invested interest in that. Mm -hmm. Um, So whether or not we're actually equipped to properly uh, investigate those things and research them. And also this is, these are still newer types of dietary habits. So I'm curious to see what long-term comes out from that, but that's the thing for me. Yeah. Just for like historical or as much factual uh, completion here, the classic ketogenic diet is rich in lipids, 90% and low in Mm. carbohydrates and protein in order to produce ketosis and stimulates or sorry, simulates a starvation state. So the whole idea with it was to get you into a state that simulated uh, starvation or or fasting, which we know has um, massive benefits. And that's a couple thousand years old that we Hippocratic sort of stuff that we know that fasting has a, has a use. Yeah. Gotta be careful. I'm sure. in some people totally, um, uh, but let's move on just to be complete. Yeah. Let's, let's move on to a uh, specific carbohydrate diet or the gaps diet, which I've lumped together because they probably have more in common than different. And I'm mm-hmm. sure someone will disagree uh, and that's okay. We're allowed to disagree, but um, clinically I find them sort of used the same way. SCD, we'll say SCD diet, Crohn's, colitis, IBD. That's the Breaking the Vicious Cycle book. Yeah. And it's legit. Like it's probably helpful in a lot of people's cases. Um, yeah. And and so it's legit clinically and or it's legit if you're being, you know, guided by your medical doctor or you're just sharp and doing it on your own. Um, and I think both of them have to do with this sort of gut brain connection. Um, and gut integrity, like leaky gut and just general yeah. inflammation. So, because if you have something that's simple, big to concepts, dig- which somehow we didn't, you know, we didn't talk about. So go. No, I mean, it's funny enough. I just listened to a talk yesterday about Crohn's and colitis. And this is, I was telling you, I listened to it yesterday, um, a webinar about this, and they were talking about bringing in simple to digest things. So maybe you have to do an elemental shake. Maybe you need to do simple monosaccharides and disaccharide types of sugars that don't require an excessive amount of breakdown. Because I think what people don't understand is that it does require a lot of energy to digest food. And if what we need to do is redirect the energy to heal your gut lining, then we don't want to exhaust energy digesting food 
we want to preserve exactly. the energy for, for healing capacity and repair capacity. So doing these kinds of diets when there's excessive gut damage, like celiac Crohn's colitis, um, they can be super helpful. And like, they were talking about even like kanji as a really amazing way, like basically like rice porridge to improve calories because a lot of people with Crohn's and colitis or celiac disease, they get, they have severe malnutrition and lose a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. So in order to increase caloric content, but not overly exhaust digestive function and energy to do that, you're going to use like kanji and, and bananas and, you know, things like that to, to get people at least back into a place. And then you begin to build and then you start to reintroduce more like raw veggies and fibers once they're in a more like, I guess, in a remission type of state where there aren't in a chronic excessive flare and the damage has been put out for the most part. Mm-hmm. I think it could be very helpful. And it's so funny. I don't, I don't treat a lot of Crohn's and colitis. I get a lot of IBS and a lot of reflux in my clinic. Yep. So whenever I get a Crohn's and colitis person, I almost have to like reshift my thought pattern because I'm so used to having people balance with macros and getting good protein and good fats. Where with these people, you have to be like, no, you can't have a million types of fibers. You can't have, you you really have to scale it back and it's a different yep. headspace. Yeah. They're different. Um, I would, I would agree the biggest, uh, utility probably for SCD, at least as far as we can tell is more for the IBD rather than the IBS sort of thing. And, um, I think you and I find other, maybe other root causes or closer to root causes for, for IBS, um, that might require less heroic dietary inter interventions. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Um, another thing you can do is caloric restriction. Yeah. Uh, so just decreasing calories. I mean, that's old school sort of conventional weight watchers, that sort of, I thinking. hate it. I yeah. hate it. <laughs> Don't like it, eh? I hate it. I also, I'm not the type of person I'm just going to put this out there. So if you want to come work with me and you want me to tell you how many calories of protein and how many cal that's not my jam. Like I, I, yeah. I, I don't like how people get very focused on the numbers rather than the quality of their food. I'd rather focus on the quality and do like pie chart estimates on what your plate looks like. That's right. my jam because I feel like sometimes people get hyper-focused on those numbers to the point of getting obsessive and stressed about it. And I don't want to fuel that fire. Yeah. Gotta be careful with it for sure. I I'll, uh, I'll step back a bit and say, I respect caloric restriction as a kind of yeah. concept especially if you're eating like a pizza for dinner and like, that's enough calories in a day. Like if you, if you're doing that and you're, you're surprised right. pizza for me is a bogey food. Uh, it's, it's one of these foods that I can just eat and it's like bottomless pit. It's the weirdest. It's the combination of <laughs> yeah. like carbs and tomato umami taste, and then yeah. a little bit of fat and salt. And then it's oh, like, I'm, I'm done. Oh, so, good. <laughs> so you got to be careful. I, 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 poo-pooed calorie restriction like you're not i had to post a long time ago you're not a calorimeter because you're not it's a lot more it's a lot more uh beautiful than that you know but calories do matter they do uh, but do you focus on them completely and count and count and i mean I, I i think you run the risk of doing what you're talking about there and just kind of going like orthocalorexia <laughs> Or and and whatever. we had a problem with that with people who read food labels. They look at the, the the nutritional value and they look at calories and fats and protein, but they don't look at the ingredients. And I'm like, we have to. I I find like my discussions with clients is more a reeducation that food is more than calories. It's information yeah. for your body. We totally. need to make sure we're providing your body with the right information because a lot of calories are empty calories, so that provides zero benefit to your system. And now you're just going to put on like weight for the sake of calories, but you didn't get any actual benefit beyond that. So that's also where I, you know, and if, obviously if someone's eating pizza for breakfast, there's a whole discussion about that too. But I tend to not focus on the calorie side. It's a hyper focused is the problem I think that we're yeah. sort of agreeing on is if, if, yeah. if that's to the, to the extent that you don't look at any other aspect of food, big problem. Is it still relevant? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then we, I, I just want to say like, we just eat whole foods as a type of diet, that's a it. type of a type of nutrition strategy. Like don't get food that is processed and really, really crappy. Yeah. Make yeah. your own food. It's hard sometimes to, yeah 
to do that if you're like busy and have you you work too long you don't time money enough. energy right those resources yeah, exactly or you got like you know five kids and they're all running around doing crazy crap all the time and <laughs> and so it it's hard but I think we need to as best as we can uh, teach the kids that we live with that food's really important food preparation yeah I would say I don't know about you um, but I would say like from from like concept to completion and dishes and everything of a, of a meal. It takes a while. Sometimes it'd be like an hour and a bit. Yeah. And so is it, a, I think it's a worthwhile thing. Um, but if you can eat whole foods, it's a great first step. Just don't change anything else. Just, just eat whole foods. Even if you eat a little too much, you'll be better off than, um, you know, too many pizzas and Chinese food and stuff like so, that. Sometimes with my clients, it's just a matter of like, just fill your cart up with more veggies. And if you still need to eat a frozen pizza, have a side of veggies on the side. At yeah, least start yeah. creating a little bit of balance there just to create yeah. a little bit of a shift or learning how to batch cook and stuff so you can make That's a larger huge. volume. Batch cook is huge. I love yeah. my, my slow cooker in the winter is like my jam. You make yeah. a big thing of like stew or like chili or whatever, yeah. and then you're good for a few days. But it does, it does take a little bit of thought. It does take a little bit of foresight. It does take a little bit more preparation and you have to find your rhythm around it. You know, there's days I don't want to cook. So sometimes I'm just like, I'm literally just going to whip out some hummus and have some veggies and, uh, and I'm going to call it a day. Like, I'm not going to lie. There are days where I'm super lazy like that. Um, same, but yeah, freezer meals can be helpful too. If you do that batch cook, put a, put one or two in the freezer and then you got some backups. Yeah. Um, for when yeah. those days come, because they do come to all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I feel like, I think that's the end of the road, isn't it? Did we cover our ground? I think so. I think we did. I mean, it's a, I think it was fairly comprehensive, I, I hope. I think so um, too. And uh, yeah, I learned a bit from you again. Um, you so that's as well, good. sir. And you, you know what, this is good because we have to go through things before and sort of like make sure... Um, it's sort of clinically relevant and relevant to the listener. So I hope you guys enjoyed that uh, little lesson on what diet and when, and maybe a better uh, way of saying it is, is this clinical nutrition to you, Michelle? What do you, cause I, I agree diet has got some connotations or whatever. What do we call? I don't know. I, I Yeah. I would use the word nutrition somewhere Yeah, because I feel like diet Eating, goes back nutrition. to res- restriction and calories and nutrition feels more like that. What's the valuable information that I get from my food rather than just the number. Um, so that's kind of how I move it. Well, you know, what we didn't really talk about is like intermittent fasting in the sense too. I wanted to, there's, there, there's, we could do a whole episode on we that. We probably because- could. Cause but, there's a lot going on with autophagy and all, and all that. Um, mm-hmm, I only maybe. said the, I said the word intermittent mm-hmm. fasting during time restricted eating. Cause I kind of see it as related to the time restricted. Um, yeah. Maybe we can do a, a discussion about that and how different ways to implement it. Cause it can be quite remarkable, but men and women, again, not always the same, depending on your stress levels, we're going to have to modify things. So like, I think maybe we do an episode on that in the future. All right. Yeah, and if you're a naturopath out there with some some uh, some real good game when it comes to intermittent fasting, or you focus a lot on it, give us a give us an email or a shout on on Instagram. Okay, Great. cool, cool. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks again, Michelle. It was fun. Again. My pleasure. Again, as always. See you next week. That naturopathic podcast. TNP. Hello there.